everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. We are so thrilled to be here with you. We have a really exciting show for you today. We have two amazing guests. We're going to be talking to Zohran Mamdani as well as Susan Abelhawa. Before we get into the show, let's make some announcements. Of course, please do like the stream. Please do share the stream. Please subscribe. Also, make sure if you can to become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And liking is also really important because it's a way to spread the word about the show. And we've been doing so many shows on Palestine and there's so much misinformation and disinformation out there that it's really important to make sure as many people learn about this as possible. Hello, Roz. Roz, who was a guest on the show, Roz Pacheski from Jewish Voice for Peace. She joined as a YouTube member. So thanks for doing that. I'm going to bring on our first guest, Zoran Mamdani, who is a New York State Assembly member for District 36. He is also a former co-founder of his college's Students for Justice in Palestine. He was born and raised in Kampala, Uganda, moving to New York City with his family at the age of seven. And prior to representing the 36th Assembly District and its neighborhoods of Astoria, Dittmar Steinway and Astoria Heights, He worked as a foreclosure prevention housing counselor. He has also done detours in film, rap, and writing. So without any further ado, Zoran, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, of course. And I've been wanting to have you on for a while because of the activity and activism and organizing you've been doing around Palestine. I saw you a couple weeks ago on the ferry coming back from the Statue of Liberty for that great action where Jewish Voice for Peace organized a takeover of the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. I also saw you get arrested protesting outside of Chuck Schumer's house with your co-arrestee, Raz Pacheski. But you're also engaging in a hunger strike right now. So can you tell us about this hunger strike and who you're doing it with? I know you're doing it with Cynthia Nixon, of course, the activist, the actor of Sex and the City fame, and also the former gubernatorial candidate. So tell us what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the second day. I'm finishing the second day now of a hunger strike where myself and a number of state representatives from across the country, including a representative from Delaware, Medina Winton, uh, Anton, Wilson Anton, as well as representatives that will be joining us from Oklahoma, from Michigan, from Virginia, alongside leaders in the Muslim, Jewish, and allied communities across the country especially, you know, Cynthia, who who joined us to to launch this press conference on Monday. This is a tactic that we have been forced to take because the urgency of this issue continues to escalate, and so our tactics must escalate as well. And there is a belief in D.C. and in the White House that this issue will simply go away. You often hear it when you read about voter disenchantment with Biden's policies. There's a response. Sources close to the president or in the Democratic Party will speak about how there is a sense that come November of next year, 
people will simply fall in line. And we know the fact that this reality of 14,850 Palestinians at least having been killed in seven weeks is a reality that will not fade with any day or week or month. It is something that will stay with so many people across this country and across this world. And I think so often we think about devastation purely in terms of a death toll. But the truth of it is that if a Palestinian is lucky enough to survive the bombing, then they will face starvation. The United Nations has said from October 21st up until now, the food that Israel has allowed into Gaza only satisfies 7% of the minimum caloric intake required for Palestinians to survive. Oxfam has said that Israel is using starvation as a weapon of war. And today the World Health Organization came out to say that if things continue as they are, more Palestinians will die from disease than will die from the bombing. So we are starving ourselves because it's our government's policies right now that are starving Palestinians. And so often we disconnect the dots in, pol in politics and we say, oh, it's the Israelis who are doing this. And we forget about the fact that our thumb is so firmly pressed on the scale as Americans and even as New Yorkers that it would not be a surprise if we found our fingerprints on the bodies of, of those thousands of dead Palestinians. Right. And here are just some photos, by the way, of the um, press conference where you announced it. So Biden, you are starving Gaza, permanent ceasefire now. Um, and that's you standing in front of the White House. We also have video of uh, here's another photo. Um, we also have this very pretty nighttime vigil um, image. That's Cynthia Nixon speaking. And then we also have video of Cynthia Nixon explaining why she's doing that, which we can watch. And then we have some video of you. So here's Cynthia Nixon. You know, we just had Thanksgiving. It's a big holiday. And then we have many more holidays coming in December. And so the week after Thanksgiving is a, a time for people to be distracted and unfocused. And uh, there's been so much momentum build, building to stop the bombing, to stop the killing in Gaza all across this country and in so many countries across the world. And we wanted to make sure that people didn't lose sight of it in this, in this week of distraction. Um, and we are hunger striking um, as a way of amplifying that, yes, that Palestinians are being bombed and killed, but they're also being starved. And so many of them are on the brink of, of starvation. And here you are, Zoran, at the vigil in front of the White House. It was his terrific questioning of the truth of the Palestinian, the devastation of Palestinians that led the health ministry of Gaza to take the time that it could have spent on saving people's lives to compile a list of the thousands of Palestinians who have been killed, their names, their ages. So we read their names here in front of the White House to honor these Palestinians, to humanize them, and to make it clear that they are not just numbers. Tomorrow we'll read them again. What was it like when you did that? How were people responding? And have you gotten any response from the White House yet? I haven't gotten any response from the White House as yet. 
The response, however, from from Americans who have just been walking by has been one of support, one of solidarity. And, you know, it, it is... It is one thing to understand this devastation intellectually, but when you read out the names of people who have been killed and you read out their ages and you spend minutes reading one last name and then you come to an end, you feel that devastation all the more deeply. And I think a number of people who were reading were moved to tears because they were reading the remnants of a once vibrant family. We know that Israel has wiped out entire Palestinian families from the population registry in Gaza. When you read the names, it feels as if that horror comes to life. That's difficult. I was just observing a CUNY protest at the CUNY Graduate Center, and they had people lying down on the ground. And they had, like, on them was printed information about them. And so they would read their name and how old they were and say something about them what they enjoyed. And it was very, like, we are not numbers. It's, I think, an organization, and it really does bring it home. Even people who are allies or supportive, I think it's easy to become desensitized a little bit. Yes. So this stuff is so important. What made you interested in this issue? Because I know you've been interested in it for a while. As I said, you've co-founded the Students for Justice in Palestine at your college. So why this issue? You know, I was born in Uganda, uh, raised there, and then and moved to South Africa when I was five years old. And I moved there right after the fall of apartheid. And what I remember about living in Cape Town was how normal it was to stand in solidarity with Palestinians, how it was simply a natural extension of ourselves. And I remember growing up and the quote from Nelson Mandela about how our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians, is something that would ring in my head. And then I got to this country and I moved to New York at the age of seven. And I was quite taken aback of how any support for Palestinians seemed to be considered illegitimate expression and how there was this glaring hypocrisy when it came to the practice of any of our politics and any of our principles in that they would not be extended to Palestinians. And as I grew older, I became familiar with the term of PEP, progressive except Palestine. Yeah. And I would see time after time progressive politicians that I admired draw the line when it came to the application of their vision to Palestinians. They said, I believe in a universal, you know, principles of, of freedom, of, of liberty, of safety, of whatever it may be until you get to Palestine. And it was a contradiction that was just so glaring. And there was an attempt to pretend as if it didn't even exist. And I think that that is something that motivated me. And in, in high school, I used to spend hours of my time going back and forth with a friend of mine about the question of Israel and Palestine. And I would think that Every time I would research my reply and I would write it out, post it on his Facebook wall, and I would think that this time I'm going to convince him. And I'm sure he felt the same way when he would write back to me, just going circular. And at that time I was in high school and this phrase was quite popular. It still is, but I remember hearing it much more then, which was, don't preach to the choir. The emphasis was that you should find the person who disagrees with you the most, spend your time with them. 
And it was at that time that actually organized with a friend of mine. We organized about 20 other South Asian students and we founded our school's first cricket team. And it was an act, though dissimilar in topic, which taught me the power of organizing, the power of organizing the choir as opposed to preaching to someone outside of it. Because in one move, I could change the material reality of my life and the life of my school and institution versus continuing to go back and forth with someone who was just as convinced as I was. They just happened to be viewing this from a completely different perspective. And that is a lesson that I took with me to college when I co-founded my school's first Students for Justice in Palestine. And the experience of organizing around Palestine is an experience that shows you the contradictions in so much of what we are told. And what I mean by that is just this, this moment I'll always remember of, you know, we had a president of our school who was widely liked and considered to be a really nice guy. And we ran an academic boycott campaign towards the end of my time at the college. And uh, I heard that the, you know, the president said that if this were to pass, then he would simply overrule it. And it was kind of this, this illumination of the fact that there are limitations even to democracy that we are told exists within our microcosm of, of a larger society. And I think that it was, it was a very important point for me to learn about Palestine and the so-called rules that apply and then how they seem to bend when it comes to, to these 7 million people. Right. I wanted to actually bring up leaked audio of the Anti-Defamation League's President Jonathan Greenblatt, because since we're talking about Students for Justice in Palestine, in this leaked audio, he says some interesting things about young people today, and he mentions Students for Justice in Palestine, SJP, as well as JVP, Jewish Voice for Peace. So let's take a listen to this leaked audio. Taglit, by the way, for people who don't know, is the birthright program that takes young Jewish kids to Israel for free. Fast. 
like the language in their toolkits was all about the Zionist entity and lots of other language that we recognized from Iranian propaganda. So a couple interesting things. One is that he says our analysts are in their groups, so everyone should be on the lookout because he's basically admitting that the ADL, Anti-Defamation League, is infiltrating these organizations like SJP and uh, uh, Students for Justice in Palestine and JVP, Jewish Voice for Peace. But you can see that people are really struggling with the younger generation's refusal to accept Zionist talking points. And they, I don't know, I don't want to psychoanalyze him, but I'm not sure if he honestly believes these are Iran-based talking points if he's trying to make it so that he's trying to otherize defending Palestinians and standing in solidarity with Palestinians. But what are your thoughts on this? You know, I think it reflects a reality, which is that this is one of the few places I will agree with someone from inside the ADL on the issue of Israel, is that a recent poll came out showing that for Americans aged 18 to 34, 70% of them disapprove of President Biden's handling of this crisis. 70%. And there is absolutely a generational shift in the way that people think about this. And I attribute that not to an algorithm, not to some attempt at once again making this a proxy war about Iran, but in fact about a generation's ability to look past narratives and instead see fact. And the fact of the matter is that 14,850 Palestinians have been killed at least in the last seven weeks. And when you see that fact and you see the stories of those Palestinians, how could you not come to the conclusion of a ceasefire? That is a very rational and frankly, a very basic conclusion. Basic in the sense that it is not, it is the bare minimum of what we have to do in this moment. Because we understand that there are deep rooted issues and a deep rooted context when it comes to Israel and Palestine. And in order for us to see the world that we so desperately want to build, one where images of reunification between Israeli hostages and their families and Palestinian political prisoners and their families are the norm as opposed to the exception. To build that world, we have to reckon with and end the occupation, the siege on Gaza, an apartheid system of government. This fight for freedom, this fight for human rights is a fight that requires a reckoning with American foreign policy for many, many decades. The critical thing in this moment, however, before we get into a question of what the future looks like is to ensure that the present does not include any more Palestinians being killed. And for that, it requires a ceasefire. And that is what troubles the Anti-Defamation League so deeply is that this is a conclusion that young people are coming to. It's a conclusion that 80% of Democrats have come to. It's a conclusion that 68% of Americans have come to. It's a conclusion that a majority of Republicans and independents have come to. So when you are losing pretty much every major political demographic in this country, I would understand why you would panic. And Brad just found this article. TikTok says it's not the algorithm. Teens are just pro-Palestine. 
In a blog post, the company denied allegations that it has been promoting pro-Palestine content in an effort to sway American opinion. So again, people can't actually accept the fact that younger people just think that human rights for Palestinians is something to be respected. Yeah, I think it it speaks to, you know, when when for so long expressions of solidarity with Palestinians have been suppressed, whether by algorithms or by professional and personal consequence for those who are speaking up, if that is the norm, then when you see a lack of suppression and organic expression, you start to view that as if it's being artificially enhanced because it seems completely unlike that which you have seen before. When in reality, this is what has been hidden from you, which is that when people are presented with the facts, they are able to empathize with every person that is killed, and they do not ask to see a passport to ensure that they are only grieving people of one nationality. They're only mourning one set of civilians. And the expressions of solidarity, even at their most basic are simply expressions of valuing human life. But that in and of itself is considered controversial when it comes to Palestinians. And I think it makes sense because so much of Israeli propaganda over many, many years has also been built on the idea that Palestinians themselves are a fictional people. You know, when you think about the narrative does not even acknowledge the existence of someone, then the extension of a basic human principle, such as the sanctity of human life, becomes so troubling because it means that, in fact, these are other people. They are deserving of things that all people deserve. And if that is the case, then so much of the narrative that has been built and used to justify the suppression of this people is, in fact, coming apart at the seams. This is not, by the way, your first hunger strike. No, no. I hope it's the last. (laughs) Yeah. God willing. But can you tell us about your last hunger strike and the campaign that you were working on for taxi drivers and what lessons and takeaways you're bringing from that to this struggle, if any? Absolutely. You know, I think that I'm the first South Asian man elected to the New York State Assembly. And I bring that up because growing up as a South Asian man in New York City, one of the issues that you're familiar with is the plight of taxi drivers. And you're familiar with it because more than 40% of taxi drivers are South Asian. The top nations of origin for taxi drivers are Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan. And I grew up with friends whose fathers were taxi drivers. I grew up reading the stories of taxi drivers and seeing people that I loved in in those words. And there is a widespread acknowledgement of the crisis that that taxi drivers faced and, and the debt crisis that was manufactured by the city of New York that was created by Mayor Mike Bloomberg and then maintained by Mayor de Blasio. And yet nothing had really been done. And so when I ran for office, I said one of the things that I would fight to do would be to cancel excessive medallion debt. And so I worked very closely with the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, an incredible union headed by Bervi Desai, who's an inspiration to me and to so many others, over many months in a campaign for debt relief for taxi drivers and a campaign to force the city of New York to guarantee the loans that they told taxi drivers would be their pathway to the middle class, but was instead their pathway to a life of debt peonage. And this was a campaign over many months. This was a campaign the union had fought for years. And it culminated in 45 days of consecutive protests outside of 
City Hall protest, which I were a part of and would help to organize a civil disobedience where myself and five other elected officials were arrested, and then a 15-day hunger strike. And it was a hunger strike that said the city needs to guarantee these taxi drivers' loans. The city needs to give a fixed loan amount of $1,234 a month and not this bullshit that is a balloon payment that is the fluctuating interest rates that so many taxi drivers were forced to deal with and a pathway of actual real relief. And after 15 days of hunger striking, that is a demand that we won. We won a city back guarantee. We won a fixed monthly payment. We won a reduction in the average debt of which was $550,000. And we brought it down to $170,000. And it was an incredible victory and one that I will forever be proud to have been a part of. And it, it was something that definitely serves as an inspiration in this moment. You know, it, it was, I think the, the difficulties here are that the scale of this issue is larger. The pressures are greater, but the necessity is just as urgent, if not far more, in that we are seeing the power to give Palestinians life or to condemn them to death lives within the White House. And so if we must starve ourselves to illuminate the costs of White House policy thus far on Palestinians, then that is what we must do. And we do it because we know that this will increase the pressure, this will increase the awareness, this will continue the momentum. I do not have the naivete to think that President Biden is sitting in the White House and wondering, what is it that I think? But I do understand that the way that pressure works in our political system is that each action builds on the action proceeding. And once we can get it to a certain point, it becomes undeniable. And it is each of our responsibilities to do our part to build this coalition and this movement to that point. And this hunger strike, this hunger strike builds it in some small way. And just so people know, I mean, it is, of course, the scale is not comparable. And this was a local issue as opposed to an international one. But this was a question of life and death. There were cab drivers who died by suicide over this. So can you just tell people about that aspect of it? Yes, this was something that it very much was life and death because the scale of debts that cab drivers were facing were so immense that they saw no way out of this. And part of that was because the city had artificially inflated the value of the medallion from its true value of around $200,000 to an artificial one of about a million dollars. And it sold medallions at this value and did so while allowing Uber and Lyft to flood the market, a market where valuation was based upon the scarcity of the asset. And so it eliminated the scarcity after having already artificially inflated the asset which meant that drivers who were already be unable to pay the monthly terms of an agreement they entered into just from fares pre-Uber and Lyft were now absolutely unable to do so with the introduction of competition that did not exist outside of their own sector of yellow taxis. And so what we saw is a number of taxi drivers who took their own lives. It was about seven, actually, taxi drivers who took their own lives at the very least. And these were drivers who would have been hailed as the symbols of the American dream. Immigrants who came to New York City with a hope of building a middle-class life for themselves, and they were sold a lie. And that lie was leading to the destruction of life, of family, and 
part of what made it so destructive was that when you entered into a loan with lenders that had been barred from the housing market but welcomed by the city to operate in the taxi medallion market, you faced the risk if you defaulted on your loan that they would seize your other assets. And so there were very common stories of drivers who would lose their homes to the lenders over their medallion payments. And that was the necessity of this guarantee that the city would guarantee these loans is to say that if a driver were to default on the loan, then the city would be on the hook for it because that would ensure that a driver's home is not up for grabs from a lender. These are the kinds of things, the failures of city government, and that is a connection between this moment and that moment, is that that was the failure of city government. This is the failure of our national government. And I think we have to, despite all the urges to the contrary, we have to understand our complicity and our responsibility in the massacres that are taking place, that have been taking place in Gaza and in the West Bank. And that's why so much of the organizing and the agitation and the rallies, the words are Palestine, not simply Gaza. It's Palestine because since October 7th, more than 200 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank, some by settlers, but primarily by the Israeli military. And although the distinction between the two is fairly arbitrary, given that settlers are truly just an extension of the right-wing military, the right-wing government of, of Israel. And this horrific reality is a reality for Palestinians all across Palestine and all across Israel, and is one that, that, we have to, that we have to change. Well, you've been so generous with your time, and I'm sure you're exhausted because you're not eating. Any final words you want to share or tell us what you're working on next as an assembly member? You know, I, I think the final words I would just say is that when you go on hunger strike, you start to feel lightheaded, you start to feel tired, you start to feel a dull headache throughout the day and pangs of, of immense hunger. This is the reality for Palestinians. This is what they face. And unlike myself, where I know that this reality will end. And, and for the other hunger strikers, all of us who go to a warm home at the end of the day where we have spent eight to 10 hours freezing in the cold outside of the White House, Palestinians cannot return to their homes. 45% of homes in Gaza have been destroyed. 45%. And if the rate continues at what it has been, we are looking at the destruction of every home in Gaza by Christmas Eve. So imagine if you were facing starvation. Imagine if you were feeling all that came with that reality. And then you had to sleep on a mattress in the rubble of your home. It is something that I hope no one ever has to experience. But it is something that speaks to the urgency of why we must speak up, why we must organize, why we must agitate, and why we must refuse any attempts at characterizing this as a complex issue, when the question is, are you or are you not okay with more Palestinians being killed? Well, thank you so much, Zoran, and would love to have you come back and talk about housing justice and so many other issues that you work on. But of course, this is a really important one. So thank you for your time and your effort and for your hunger strike. Thank you so much for having me. Katie. Thank really you. Appreciate. 
Have a great night. Thank you. Okay, that was great. And we have another guest on who I'm so excited to bring on. But before we do that, I just wanted to read a comment from Roz. As I mentioned, we are not numbers. And Roz writes, we are not numbers as an Oregon Gaza to nurture writing and artistic expression among children and youth was based in Gaza City. And now where can it be? And I know them from Instagram and Twitter because they will post horrible updates about the latest person who was in their program who was killed or who had a relative killed. So it's heartbreaking and infuriating. And none of this has to be this way. So we are going to, please do like the stream, by the way, if you haven't already. It's just a really easy way to share the word. We want to make sure that people come and see these really great guests like Zoran Mamdani. But also we want to make sure that people see our next guest, who is Susan Abuhawa, a Palestinian-American writer and human rights activist. She is the author of Mornings in Janine, which was translated into 32 languages and sold more than a million copies. The Blue Between Sky and Water and Against the Loveless World. And she is the founder of Playgrounds for Palestine and the executive director of Palestine Rights. So Susan, welcome. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I wanted to have you on to catch up with you, but also to ask you in particular about your recent trip to Egypt. You were with the Caravan of Conscience and you were trying to get to the Rafa crossing. Can you tell us about what happened? Yeah, so we were actually the first international group to go there, and we arrived before they made the announcement for the World Conscience Caravan. The call that came out was in part spurred by our presence there. We went as a group. Myself and Suzanne Adeli had some contacts in Egypt, and we thought we might be able to get to Rafah. It was a long shot, but, you know, so many of us have been here just paralyzed, unsure what to do. And um, at a minimum, we were going to take some aid with us that, you know, f- that we wanted to give to the Red Crescent um, as a donation. And we um, were not allowed to go to Rafah. There was one moment where we thought we were going to get to go with the Dastur party, um, Hezbollah Dastur. It's the constitution party. It's an opposition party in Egypt. And actually they were given permission. Um, it was really a, a kind of a bizarre situation. They left at 7.30 in the morning and didn't get to Rafah until like 9.30 at night because there are so many military checkpoints from you know, all throughout Sina from, uh, from, you know, from Cairo to Al-Arish and then to, to, to Rafah. Um, but we, we thought we were going to have a chance to go with them on their bus, but at the last minute we were, um, denied. They gave us like a lot of different reasons why, but in the end, um, you know, it, it didn't really matter. We, you know, we just, we weren't allowed to. And then, uh, the, so the call that was put out for, um, for internationals to come, uh, was done through the media syndicate in Cairo, it's the Egyptian media syndicate. And, um, they, it seemed like they were going to be able to get permissions, but of course, as you know, they later put out another, uh, message, um, online that, 
uh, for people who haven't already booked, don't come because it doesn't look like permissions are forthcoming. And indeed, to to this day, I think there's some people also stuck in Cairo, much as we were, um, who are unable to get to Rafah because the Egyptian government apparently doesn't want a bunch of internationals going to Rafah. Um, they, you know, they don't want to lose control over the situation. They're giving all manner of excuses why, but yeah, who knows? Yeah. And you said you got arrested? Yeah. So when we weren't going to be able to go to Rafah, we were detained rather, I should say. I was in communication with someone, that one of the attaches at the U.S. Embassy because we wanted to meet with them and express our displeasure as U.S. citizens. And he was really kind of slow responding. And anyway, we we decided to have a press conference. We were going to deliver a letter to the embassy and have a press conference outside the embassy. So we got, you know, our group, you know, was in, we're, we're in different cars. And when, when I arrived, part of the group was on the other side of the street and they told us that, you know, security told them they're not allowed to, you know, to deliver anything. They can't be there. So we were on the other side of the street on a public sidewalk. We're about, maybe 14 people and security was just coming up to us, you know, one after another asking questions. And, you know, it seemed pretty innocent enough, you know, they were, you know, wanted to know why we're there, what we're doing. And I was the only one who was fluent in Arabic. There were a couple other people who spoke kind of broken Arabic. So I was talking, I was just kind of explaining to them, Maybe a a bit naively, you know, just, hey, you know, we're not here to cause any issues. We just, we were delivering a letter. You told us we can't do that. So now we're across the street. We're not bothering anybody. And then each one would say, okay, you're fine. And then the other one would come in the same scenario, would play out again. And the next thing we know, (laughs) we were surrounded by like a whole crew of them came. So they were basically buying time until the rest of their posse came and suddenly their demeanor just switched really quickly and they became incredibly belligerent and like using their most terrifying voices and whatnot. And they honed in on the brownest person in the group. They knocked him around a bit. We were quite worried that he was going to get tortured. He, he was of Egyptian background. But in the end, it turned out to be okay. They just interrogated us and took our passports, took our phones, and we just answered their questions, whatever, and, and they let us go. By the way, I really want to recommend Susan's books, especially for people who don't know a lot about the issue of Palestine and a lot of the history. It's a really great way to get people aware of it because it's not boring. I mean, I was going to say it's not boring history. History can be very exciting, but fiction, I think, has a special way of getting people to be interested in in a subject kind of effortlessly. So I highly recommend it. And the holidays are coming up. So good holiday present. I'm going to get you to write a blurb for me. Not boring. (laughs) Not boring. Yeah. No, great. I can even be better than that. Yeah. It's a really good, I think, like gateway book for people who don't know a lot about it. All the books are, are great. I've read all of them. Did you? Yeah. And of course, I'm always like, which part is real? Is that her? Is that someone she knows? I'm always curious. 
whenever <laughs> people write books. I want to know what's fiction, what's nonfiction. Can you talk more about what the people on the ground in Palestine who you have connections with are telling you and what they're experiencing, your friends and family? I mean, it's what you expect, Katie. It's, it's, um, it's unfathomable. It's hell. Um, a lot of them are, I think a lot of them are just in shock. Um, and they're hungry. They're terrified. They're bewildered. Um, I don't think any of us can really, uh, really truly know what it's like to, to be living in Gaza at this hour. Um, it's shocking that this can happen in broad daylight in full view of the world. And, and you still, you still have people arguing that this is the right thing to do. It's almost, it's enough to kind of make you misanthropic, <laughs> you know, um, just to want to hop off this planet and, and like, who are these people? Like, who are they? Who are these people who can see, you know, these images, these videos of just all these children who, you know, when they pull them out of the rubble and their lips are, are blue, you know, that means that they were, they died because they were buried alive. I mean, that's how these people are, are dying. They're being buried alive. And so that's not a quick, that's not a, that's the most terrifying death, the most gruesome death I can imagine. And, and it's happening to thousands of people. And how is it that anybody can look at that and think that that's okay and we need to do more of it? And, and what's worse is that Israelis, in large numbers, these aren't just fringes, but it seems to be happening across Israeli society, people are celebrating this in the streets and they're laughing about it. And you have, I think, a thousand Israeli doctors signed a letter calling for their military to bomb El Shifa Hospital. I mean, that's their doctors. First, do no harm. Do no harm. Like, but it's just, I want to say, you know, that's the level of dehumanization, but it's beyond dehumanization. It is just, I don't understand it. I don't think normal people can ever see images like that, even if it's of somebody you really hate. You know, I cannot imagine ever finding glee and and something so horrific like that. But it's happening across Israeli society. It's happening. You know, that's just the glee and the dancing and the and the mocking. But then across the upper echelons of the military and the political establishment, the conversations are horrific. You had, what's his name, Ilad, that retired Israeli general who was saying that we should, we should make sure that the water and, and food are cut off because that will speed up 
the appearance of disease, which could basically wipe them out in larger numbers. I mean, this is, this is, they're saying this stuff out loud, like it's normal, like it's okay. And, and I think they, they do that because it is normal in, in Israeli society. This is very logical and normal conversation in Israeli society, which is, um, you know, the rest of the world is just waking up to it. It's stuff that we have always heard. It's stuff that they have said to us, the, the, the people we love, to, to ourselves and, and to Palestinians across the board. But the world is getting to hear it now. And I think that that is one of the results, the consequences of, of what's happening now, what Israel is doing. I think that this historically is a moment in history that it will mark a before and after moment. I think October 7th is really the beginning of not just Israel's downfall, but I think of Western domination in general. I think the whole of the global South and beyond and is looking at Israel and is looking at all of these Western democracies who love to preach to the rest of us about, you know, human rights and the rule of law and human dignity. And we've always known it's bullshit. We've always known that they hate us. We've always known that they, they always fancy themselves as being superior. But now, now we have the confirmation, you know, now the whole world gets to see it and, and to have this confirmation. And I don't think they can recover from this. And I, and we can't let them recover from it. Israel cannot not be held accountable. And I think it's really, we have a lot of work ahead of us to ensure that that happens, whether it's through global mass boycott or, or just, you know, isolation or whatever, but they have to, they have to be held accountable. I had on Craig McIver, who was the longtime UN official human rights lawyer, the director of the UN's New York office of the high office for Human Rights Commissioner. And he was saying how they say these things out loud. Like when you're trying to make the case for genocide, often the hardest part is to prove the intent, the genocidal intent. But they're just saying these things out loud. And the reason they're saying these things out loud, that would be potentially dangerous to say out loud, just from a self-preservation perspective, is, is precisely because there's such a culture of impunity and because they're not held accountable. And so we do have to hold them accountable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Rastigal said that as well. And there are also, of course, Ross, so now all these Zionist entities, to quote the alleged Iran propaganda, are trying to smear Rastigal. I don't know if you've seen that, because he said that there's a genocide happening. So, Yeah, he said it's, it's a textbook case of genocide. Textbook case of genocide. I'm not surprised they're trying to, to smear him. Is he, uh, is he a self-hating Probably, yeah. Yeah, self, self-hating self Jew, right? I think they're in that category now too, right? Oh, definitely. It's insidious. And you know, Zoran was talking earlier about, you know, the, the ADL, or actually, no, you mentioned it, that the ADL has, you know, elements or spies. I wanted to comment on that because, you know, that's not, you know, the history of the ADL. I mean, they have a long history of spying on social justice groups from anti-apartheid groups Food Not Bombs, the Black Panthers, the NAACP, ADC. I mean, every social justice group. And, you know, I think the ADL, they should be investigated as a foreign agent, frankly. 
I agree. I would support that. It's so funny because all these people who accuse us of anti-Semitism, they're the ones perpetuating so many of these anti-Semitic tropes, like the dual loyalty trope, right? They're the ones who conflate being a Zionist with being a Jew, Yep, which is not true. Also, I mean, Zionism itself is the biggest promulgator of anti-Semitism. It kind of assumes this sort of singular Jewish mind and this singular Jewish loyalty to a political entity. I mean, that itself is, you know, is anti-Semitic, that every Jew in the world is a Zionist and supports Israel. And Yeah, I know. That's, I mean, we had on an Orthodox rabbi last week, and, you know, he and I disagree on many things, but one of the things that we obviously do agree on is that Israel has no right to pretend to speak for all Jews, which, of course, they do. And he went through some of the really self-loathing slash anti-Semitic things that a lot of the founders of Israel actually have said, which is ironic because people are constantly telling critics of Israel that we're either anti-Semitic and or self-loathing Jews. But some of the things that these people who founded Israel said, ranging from, you know, Herzl to Jabotinsky, are just dripping with anti-Semitism. And Ben-Gurion, who called Jews parasites, there was such a strong rejection of diaspora Jewry. Well, they also, they didn't like Arab Jews either. They considered them dirty Arabs. <laughs> you know, they sprayed them with DDT when they arrived. They took their babies away and gave them to Ashkenazi Jews. And But they created this fake Jew, right? That's why they had to like create modern Hebrew, which they didn't speak. And so they rejected, they were, like you said, they were racist against Arab Jews but they also had like a shame, you know, they associated like Ashkenazi Jews with the shtetl and going to like the slaughter or like lambs to the slaughter with the Holocaust. So they had to create this new Jew that was like defined by machismo and taking the land away from people, basically, even though they pretended it was a. Zionism is insidious. It really is insidious. It's another face of white supremacy. It's a supremacist ideology. It's a colonial project. And in some ways it has, it's colonized Judaism just as it has colonized Palestine. And there can't be any justice or any peace or, or anything that is life affirming as long as Zionism is thriving. I think that's something people really need to understand is that, because I think people really are so naive. They really think that Israel cares about Jews. Oh, for God's sakes. They do. I mean, people were raised with this idea, right? And they think that Israel was really founded to give Jews a safe haven. And people don't realize that so many of Zionist supporters were people who didn't want Jews in their own countries. That's why they wanted Jews to go to Israel. I mean, I don't know if you heard what Jonathan Pollard just said recently. Did you hear? What was it? He was taught. He said, you know, um, these, the, the families, what Israel needs to do is declare martial law and tell the families of the hostages to shut up or we will shut you up. <laughs> we don't care about, not about the hostages. I mean, they've been killing them. A lot of the, I mean, first of all, we know that they killed a lot of the Israelis who were killed on October 7th. They died at the hands of Israel's Apache helicopters and their tanks and, and their own police and military. And 
a lot of them were also killed in the strikes in Gaza. Israel had a chance from day one to get the hostages back. And Hamas was very clear about that. They set out the terms and they said, look, we don't want to keep your hostages. We are caring for them. We'll hand them over. Here's what you know. we want you to hand over our hostages that you've been holding without charge or trial. But Israel didn't do that. They ended up killing a lot of their own people again in those airstrikes. The goal has never been to free the hostages. That's the sellable ticket item. And nor is the goal really to remove Hamas. The goal is to take Gaza and to get their hands on that particular piece of land, which is associated with a massive offshore gas field that is worth uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. And also the, uh, the geographic location that lends itself to a, um, a shipping canal that could rival the Suez Canal and basically render Egypt irrelevant for, you know, forever. By the way, we have that Jonathan Pollard clip. And Jonathan Pollard is someone who Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro, who we had on last week, brought him up because he was saying, basically, speaking of the dual loyalty, because this guy was an Israeli spy, he was saying that all Jews should be loyal to Israel. And Rabbi was pointing out how anti-Semitic that is. So here's what he had to say about the hostages and their families. More, the first thing that the government should have done was declare a state of national emergency and told all of the hostage families, you will keep your mouths shut or we will shut them for you. You will not interfere in our management of this war. You will not be used by the international community or by our own leftists who managed the Shalit deal as a weapon against us. And if that means imprisoning to silence certain members of the hostage families, then so be it. It's, we're in a state of war. I was dead set against turning all these posters out with kidnapped with all these pictures of these poor people that were kidnapped. Why? Because each one of them was a poison dart and our ability to... So insane. And he was an American who spied for Israel, by the way. Actually, and according to, you know, U.S. authorities, his, the, the, he, as, as in, when it comes to espionage, Jonathan Pollard alone did the most damage to, you know, U.S. security. And then one president after another, Israel lobbied. And finally, I think it was under Clinton that he was finally released. But yeah, they don't care about Jews there. I mean, we know they don't care about Palestinians, obviously, but they don't even, I think so many people think, well, they protect their own. They'll do anything to save their own. And they don't even do that. Yeah, I honestly don't really care. I'm concerned about what's happening to Palestinians. I'm concerned about what's happening to people who have no way to defend themselves, who have nowhere else to go, who are languishing in extraordinary horror and a hell. What do you think people need to know about the terrorism that, because there's a lot of talk about Hamas being a terrorist organization, right? 
And you wrote an article at the Electronic Intifada, Israel is on its colonial deathbed. And you talk about unfathomable cruelty that Israel perpetuates, and you talk about state terrorism. Can you talk to us a little bit about this state terrorism? I mean, from its inception, I mean, this is what, you know, they've been genociding us since 1947. There was no social media back then and no videos that could be taken. But frankly, a lot of us are are watching this and especially like some of the elders are saying, this is what happened to us. This is what they did to us in our village and, and so-and-so. And this is, you know, it's kind of, they're reliving it. And this is what it was like. I think this is what it was like in this country against indigenous Americans. We're seeing, we're watching a moment in history that represents previous genocides that were not televised. And Israel is... You know, it's it's a terrorist state. It practices terrorism on an industrial scale. Their terrorism is systematic. It is daily. It pervades every aspect of life. Going from your house to your work, you are passing through this apparatus of terrorism where you really have no control over your life and you don't know if you're going to die from a moment to the next or if you're going to get maimed or shot or if it's a settler that's going to come after you or or one of their you know attack dogs or or soldier or somebody's going to come and tear your house down or if these fuckers are going to knock your door down in the middle of the night and drag your children out this happens on the daily and it's just this slow horrific reality that they have created for us So yes, absolutely, it's a terrorist state. But the thing about that is that is completely unsustainable. And I think Hamas is teaching them that. You cannot live by your sword in a region where you are surrounded by hundreds of millions of Arabs and Muslims who see what you're doing and are just hating you because of what you're doing. People who have invited you repeatedly to integrate into the region, to become a normal society, to stop destroying the indigenous people in Palestine, live as equals and not as their lords, and integrate into the region with full economic freedom and movement. But the problem is, this is the colonial arrogance, and it's nothing new. It's just a very old script of people who believe that they are inherently better, more worthy than the people who live where they want to live. It's unthinkable for them to live with us as equals. It's unimaginable. And from our part, it is unimaginable that we will continue to live under their boot. And this is where Hamas comes in. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. 
And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.